0: Hello and welcome to The History of Now, a podcast from the History Faculty of the University of Cambridge, or more precisely, from a locked-down suburban living room just north of the River Cam. I'm Chris Clark, and today I'm talking with Chris Briggs, Senior Lecturer in Medieval, Economic and Social History in the Faculty of History at the University of Cambridge. Chris has published widely on subjects related to social welfare, living standards, domestic organisation and manorial agriculture in medieval England and Europe, and is the author of a major study of the economics of village life in the Middle Ages, credit and village society in 14th century England. But before I speak with Chris Briggs about a pandemic that tore through the fabric of social and economic life in 14th century England, let me say that we are operating for the moment under narrow technical constraints. So I'll ask you to forgive the appalling quality of the audio. Chris, the 14th century plague pandemic is believed to have killed around 50 million people in Europe alone in the 14th century, or roughly 60% of Europe's population. To convey a sense of the uh, impact of this disease, let me read a few lines from the account, the contemporary account, of a Florentine chronicler. All the citizens did little else except to carry dead bodies to be buried. At every church they dug deep pits down to the water table, and thus those who were poor, who died during the night, were bundled up quickly and thrown into the pit. In the morning, when a large number of bodies were found there, they took some earth and shoveled it down on top of them, and later others were placed on top of them, and then another layer of earth, just as one makes lasagna with layers of pasta and cheese. Chris, what kind of disease was this, where did it come from, and how did it proliferate so quickly?
1: Yes, thanks, Chris. That's a truly, truly shocking image there from the, from the contemporary source. This... Medieval disease was a new disease, rather like coronavirus today. Rather like today, it it spread rapidly across the world in a relatively short period of time. And similar to the situation we're facing today, it was Asian in origin and then came to Europe and wreaked havoc. Unlike today, it, it was something that had massive economic as well as health consequences. Most people... Agree that the 14th century pandemic was what we what we know today as plague, in both its bubonic and its pneumonic forms. So it's it's a bacterial disease, crucial to note, not not a viral disease like the one we're facing right now. And so it behaved differently, and it was more deadly in, in overall. Um, compared to the coronavirus that we're facing today. Fewer recovered from it, so the case mortality was much higher in 1347-51. And I think it's fair to say as well that the black death, the disease that caused the black death, was more indiscriminate in terms of the the groups that it, that it affected and where mortality hit. So, and of course, um, we've... we've we're facing a disease today where we have weapons and systems to tackle it there are those kind that are almost entirely absent in the 14th century so that's a big contrast as well so yeah essentially
0: yeah and, and you, you you referred before to the bubonic and the pneumonic variants mm. of the disease um bubonic is it's a it's a, a a rather alien term um what why is it called the bubonic plague what is bubonic about this plague
1: well, the term bubonic refers to the buboes or large swellings, egg-like swellings, as contemporary um, writers like Boccaccio uh, referred them to, which are also characteristic of, of modern plague, as it still unfortunately exists today. Swellings that found normally in the groin of a sufferer or at the, the armpit, relatively small in number. Um, so that's, that was the most common form, uh, we think in its incidence in the mid 14th century but it seems pretty clear that a mnemonic form in which um, in which the sufferer was coughing up um, aerosol sputum in which which contained uh, the bacterium as well that was also present to some extent uh, in the mid 14th century and that perhaps is a key to understanding a quite mysterious feature of the, of the medieval epidemic was with the rapidity of its spread so I think that's that's been a challenge for historians and epidemiologists to, un- to understand why in 1347, 1348, 49, this disease without modern transport uh, facilities spread rapidly across Europe. And it, one possible explanation of that is that the pneumonic form is more prevalent than we might otherwise think. Um, but- bubonic, bubonic plague in itself moves quite slowly because it involves rats, well, rodents more generally, fleas, as vectors, so it needs to pass from rodents to humans via the rat flea as a vector, and that's, that's a, a time-consuming process. The incidence of a mnemonic form might explain this otherwise puzzling feature of, uh, of the Black Death, that is, its rapid rapid spread and ripping through populations quite quickly.
0: But th- but that's that's a very interesting point. That, I mean, because that is another um, another point of, of comparison with the with today's mm. coronavirus um, crisis. That that this is a disease which begins in the animal world and then crosses um, initially by this very adventurous route that you refer to through through the through the um, the, 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 the movement of um, of fleas from rats who have actually died of the disease uh, to human hosts, and in fact. Um, There's only, as far as I'm aware, there are only one or two species of flea that can perform this role, this vector role uh, in transferring the the, the disease. So a lot of ducks need to be lined up in a row in order for this disease to proliferate by that means. Whereas, as you say, you also have the much deadlier, much more dangerous form of the disease, which can uh, move from human to, to human through droplets.
1: That's absolutely right. And there's one thing that all the contemporary writers are absolutely clear on is the... The fact that at the time, if anyone came into contact with another human, the chances of them uh, contracting the disease are extremely high. That entire household, as soon as one person in a household got it, then everyone would get it. They were absolutely clear that contagion was was rife, which doesn't fit with our modern understanding of bubonic plague. So, this idea that pneumonic plague may have been uh, more, you know, more widespread than. Than we, than we thought, uh, is, is one explanation. Another uh, possibility is that the human-to-human contact was facilitated um, by h- human body louse uh, or human flea, which jumped straight from one person to another, if you like, and cut out the, the vectors of, of rat and flea. And that's mm. possibly the reason why it spread so quickly from human to human. Another key feature of the sources that's, that's relevant here is the, the general absence of reference to rats or rodents of any kind. The medieval sources don't talk about this, with one or two small exceptions, um, which means that the great rat die-offs that we associate with late early 20th century uh, plague outbreaks don't seem to have been present in 1347-51. So it remains a mystery, uh, but we have to accept that the disease, as it was in the mid-14th century, could be um, the same pathogen, but behaving in a very different way, in a very different environment. from what we know from um, from modern plague,
0: and when you look at the uh, sort of at the panorama of, of responses in, in English society to this um, terrifying disease what, what, what do you see any parallels I mean what about the emotional impacts
1: it has a it has a huge emotional impact I think um, we see this across a variety of sources from Europe uh, I think England and Britain is, is characterized I think I guess a kind of narrower range of responses the number of chroniclers writing in depth and detail about the the first pandemic 1347 51 or 1348 to 9 as it is in, in Britain um the number is is perhaps smaller than it is elsewhere in Europe some of the Italian writers are much more uh Detailed descriptive and vivid and evocative perhaps in their responses i'm thinking particularly of the Capture petra the early early humanists but some of the other chroniclers uh, as well um so there's but even in the in the british chronicles of different kinds there's there are vivid vivid responses they tend all to be um, i think interestingly quite retrospective so even people who lived through it um the writings we have are Looking back and reflecting on the horror, the unparalleled horror that they had experienced, I think what is distinctive about our current experience in the coronavirus is the the degree to which we are commentary in the public sphere is able to anticipate what's going to happen. We know what's coming, uh, and we can we can reflect on that. We don't interestingly we don't see so that so much in the medieval writings, even though I'm sure that people in Britain in in uh, early 1348 must have known what was coming it's quite interesting That's, that we don't have any writing saying reflecting on that anticipatory moment uh, which is a distinctive contrast between our own time and the medieval mindset if you like
0: yes yes that 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 idea of a of a global um, moment of contemporaneity where we all become contemporaries we all become participants mm. in the same experience and you can see empty streets in Sydney you know um, Beijing um, Durban and wherever you look you see the same scenes the same behavioral responses it really is extraordinary but that, that's perhaps one of the signatures of modernity that that kind of sense of contemporaneity is possible the fact of a, the contemporary the contemporaneous um, rampaging of a disease of course is not new but the awareness of it in that way I suppose is is a consequence of, of um, the, sure. the, the con- connectivities of, of modern media um, how do the authorities in England respond to this threat is there an official response of any kind I mean do they try to do anything about the the spread of the disease
1: I think the answer in, 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 in England I think to so speak of England is, is they do relatively little. In terms of public health measures intended to contain and restrict the spread of the disease, the action or the recorded action is, is minimal. And you can kind of understand that this is entirely new. The weapons at their disposal are limited. There are important measures to deal with the dead, which are impressive in terms of the social organization that they involve. But and in, and in London in particular, but those tend to come from private individuals and the church, uh, important figures in civic society rather than the government, i.e., either of the city of London or of uh, the royal government themselves. The royal government, I think, in England seems to be sort of more fixated on trying to deal with a negative economic fallout of a sudden loss of up to half of the population in 1349 to 50. Uh, through its legislation to restrict wages and control the movement of labour, which is promulgated and implemented very quickly in late 1349, rather than trying to deal with um, the spread of the disease uh, during the course of of that year. The church does more in a way by um, organising processions in England. Various bishops uh, across across the country are heavily involved in organising processions and uh, prayers, to try to uh, kind of ward off um, the sense of divine disapproval that they believe the pestilence to represent. Um, There is something of a contrast that we should note between, I think, England and other parts of Europe, particularly Italy. I think we can sketch this, that in places like Pistoia, most famously, there, there are ordinances, civic ordinances, produced by the government, the Pistoia communal government, to... Actually, try to um, limit gatherings of people, people getting together. So, effectively, early social distancing, distancing measures uh, come into place in Pistoia. Uh, measures on food sellers, butchers, and these kinds of things, uh, rules around funerary rites, and all the rest of it. And although Pistoia is the best-known one from the from the first outbreak, they're not they're not unique to Pistoia. Uh, and I think also medical professionals um in France, Italy, Spain get more involved they can be seen to be advising communal governments invi- advising secular governments, writing their treatises about playing in vernacular so they're accessible to the authorities. so I think there's a bit of a contrast between England and, and the British response I think and uh, this is one of the least we yes yeah, what we see religion. elsewhere.
0: Yes, absolutely. That's very interesting. It's one of the most interesting themes, I think, in the history of epidemic disease. That um, very often, confronted by exactly the same microbe or exactly the same virus, different um, political political cultures will respond in very different ways. Um, and that's that's a very striking. It's interesting mm. to that was a striking feature already of the of the medieval response to to the to the plague. Um, what beliefs did people entertain about the origins of this disease and and did it have an effect on social behavior did it affect attitudes to minorities
1: it did indeed and i think i mean, we, we we need to kind of distinguish between intellectual and elite explanation science you know science the best science of the day if you like and and the more um widely held common beliefs about what what this disease meant or what it caused it i think at the at the higher levels in the in the university sphere we see initially, at least, a very concerted attempt to reconcile what was happening with astrological beliefs uh, to try to explain the outbreak, the epidemic, in terms of um, conjunction of planets. Um, And that that was particularly pushed by the Paris um, Medical School and taken up elsewhere. So try to fit this with pre-existing astrological beliefs was common. Again, there was, at the other end of the spectrum, um, importance placed on human agency. So this was not to do with um, the planets or with the humors and the disposition of people, but it was to do with human agency, malignant human agency, not entirely, but very largely directed at minorities so unfortunately what we see in large swathes of central Europe is accusations against Jews and other minorities of well poisoning um, atrocities committed against those groups but at the same time great condemnation of that action by the papacy which is to be admired the bull Sikot you days of uh, Clement the 12th of uh, in 1348 condemning this action um, so and then of what of the thirdly of what I've already mentioned um, that we've seen in Britain and the idea that we've divine displeasure had been incurred and this was to this was to uh, the main explanation for what was happening and that the best way to do that was through prayer processions and an improvement of moral life and in fact in Britain as well, there were certain substrands of that um, that way of thinking. Certain chroniclers, Henry Knighton, uh, stern chroniclers like John of Reading at Westminster thought that one possible cause for what was happening was people's clothing, uh, changes in fashions before <laughs> in the years running up to 1348, excessively tight clothing and excessively pointy shoes. The comeuppance <laughs> for this was the defined displeasure it, uh, expressed through the, the pandemic, so There was a lot of different ideas going on, some of which don't make sense to us, some of which um, make more sense, Uh, but uh, they were struggling to deal with something, obviously, that they'd not experienced before, and they were trying to fit it into pre-existing paradigms as best Mm. they could
0: yes as as indeed we are (laughs) we're never free humans are never free of those pre-existing paradigms um but i was i was struck by in in what you said by well first of all by a point of contrast and then by perhaps by a parallel the point of contrast is that you know we have not seen in connection with the coronavirus um a spike in intercommunal violence we haven't seen Singling out of minorities, there's been a, a bit of loose talk about how this is a Chinese virus, as if as if the virus carries a passport, which obviously it doesn't, um, or the foreign virus, uh, as we've heard from some quarters. Um, but in, in fact, the, the, those those sort of infra societal effects have mm. been very muted uh, so far, thankfully. And yeah. then point of, of para, point of connection. It's interesting you refer to the the notion um, adopted that. That the propitiation of the deity, um, the adoption of a, an improved form of moral life, um, is, is the right response to this mm. um, challenge, to this tribulation. And there, I think, there are parallels with the contemporary setting, with, with people who are making the argument that this is a kind of judgment on uh, our globalized way of life. Um, that it's a warning um, of, you know, how fragile our systems have become, um, that it's a reminder of the importance of social solidarity, so that you do see, if you like, secularized versions of that um, propitiatory logic of the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, they haven't gone away. They're just, it's, it's sort of old wine in, in new skins. Thinking now about the, I mean, given these horrendous numbers um, between a, a third and a half, uh, perhaps even more 60% of the population a uh, die off which as you say is is not limited to the aged or the the least economically active but affects all of the the society more or less equally um, given that you know profound demographic impact um what sorts of short term economic effects are we looking at
1: yeah the the short the short term economic effects were were huge you know, i mean we we see I mean, this is a highly agrarian society, so obviously it's dependent on the annual cycles of harvest and livestock uh, production. And, well, at least in, in England, when this thing hit sort of halfway through the agricultural year at its apogee in early 1349. In fact, a lot of the agricultural work had been done uh, in terms of the sowing of crops and the and the preparation for harvest but this thing hit At the time of harvest essentially or just before the time of harvest there was very little labor to actually collect the crops that were growing in the fields so we have accounts of crops rotting in the fields um animals wandering around in a famous account of henry Knighton, the leicester the leicester monk um dying under hedges and a huge loss of of an important form of capital in terms of animals, as well as, of course, the human capital of, of peoples, tragically, as well. So a massive shock. And in fact, in ter- you can see this in terms of the price The price level. The prices during the course of 13, 14, 8, eight to 9 uh, actually c- collapsed, interestingly. We, we don't see, in, in the medieval context, any of these price rises or attempts to exploit um, shortages that we hear in the media today. As far as we know, prices collapsed as demand collapsed, as people were essentially um, succumbing to the disease in 1348-9 to itself. Then over the slightly longer term, in the years that followed um, after the waning of the disease disease in uh, late 1349, we see much higher prices as the shortage of labour bit and resources were uh, at a low level. In the longer term, and again I'm talking mainly here about England and, and Britain. The key thing to have to, we have to remember in analysing the Black Death is, of course, that it's just the first and greatest outbreak, the first of a of a pandemic that ran intermittently into the early 18th century across Europe. So this is just the first step in a in a in, a, in a, something that was run for several centuries. There are repeated outbreaks, not as severe as the first outbreak, but repeated outbreaks: 1361, 1369, the mid 1370s, 1390. So any estimate of its economic impact over the longer term, and indeed its psychological and social impact, has to take into account the fact that there, there are these repeated waves whose character is still not fully understood, uh, mm-hmm. driving down population and you know, creating further shortages of labor, further destructions of capital, and short-term shocks to the economy. So you know, we yep. don't know where we are now, but hopefully we, we, we are in a, in a, one-off, um, a one-off shock Whereas those people in the 14th century were subject to repeated repeated shocks, which of course had a big impact on their kind of responses that we were talking about a moment ago.
0: Yes, I mean given, given that periodicity that you describe of the disease, is there a learning process? Do do, do is there any evidence that English cities or English towns um, got better at handling this disease?
1: Well, you'd like to think I'm so I'm sure they did. This is a question of recording, and I think. Over the longer term, they certainly did. Certainly, into the 15th century, when uh, epidemic disease outbreaks became more localized, there's no doubt that um, plague ordinances, informal modes of quarantining, um, restrictions on movement become more widespread in a piecemeal basis. It's still hard to see the central government before the before the 16th and 17th centuries um, taking massive steps. I think it's it's fair to say, at least um, in England. Uh, I mean, on the responses on, on the other side, in terms of explanations and the question of divine judgment, it must have been hard for people to understand how the church was saying, if we, if we improve our moral lives and we undertake processions and pray, then we can, we can ward this thing off, but it keeps coming back. So inevitably, that was going to have an impact on people's kind of interior religious lives um, as, the, as, as, the, as the decades proceeded. And
0: as I I, I, it used to be argued that that this one of the sort of medium to longer term effects of this disease of this uh, epidemic was um, a loosening of the feudal nexus. In other Mm. words, the the commutation of labor duties to to cash payments, um, the the emergence of a a workforce that was in a stronger negotiating position vis-a-vis landowners. and, um, and so, in other words, the sort of that the the plague had a kind of emancipatory impact yeah. on society, at least in England. Is, is that does that hold any?
1: Um, I think it that does hold. Again, it, you're absolutely right. Uh, although it depends to a certain extent on the timescale, again, that one is talking about. I mean, the period, the late 14th and 15th centuries, are still treated to some extent as the golden age of the peasantry, where those who did survive and reproduced had. A greater access to resources, that the land-labor ratio uh, was more favorable, that there was an improvement in material life, diets, leisure, all these kinds of things. And, and I think that's that's true, and, and that is also coupled with the undeniable fact of the the, the disappearance of serfdom by 1380, 1390, depending on how you interpret it, um, the withering away of serfdom. But on the short the point I was I was referring to a moment ago is that in the short term, in 1348, 49 to 50, society had to deal with a great deal of poverty through the mm. loss of, as well as the psychological impact, but the loss of, of family members, of human capital, of the, the labor required to actually do the work, the heavy labor that society required in order to reproduce itself. So it was a period of real poverty and shortage and shock followed in the longer term by transformative as you say economic developments leading to many of the things that we associate with the early modern period rise of agrarian capitalism larger farms uh, you know these kinds of uh, things that prefigured the industrial revolution so a lot of weight has been placed on the black death but it depends that what time period what historical time period one is Taking into account in the interpretations that one makes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the what, what, interesting thing about that, what you just said, is that you know for modern pandemics as well. I'm thinking here of studies of the of the Spanish influenza, mm-hmm. pandemic, which also killed around about 50 um, million people. Though that's a worldwide figure, not a European one. Um, that um, studies have shown that the that the experience of concentrated impoverishment in certain affected strata is actually quite a lasting effect that there's a generation of people who are permanently affected by this um disaster that the recovery is swift for the system as a whole but but slow for the worst affected um i'm just thinking now about cultural effects i mean i I recall an argument being made in the italian context about the 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 effects of a die-off of the of many of the most skilled artists in the towns where plague was most virulent and um the the argument was made that a lot of these people were, are replaced by more rural uh, artisanal mm. artists uh, who lack the refinement the aesthetic refinement of their predecessors and that so you get a loss of, of cultural refinement and uh, and and uh, also turning away from adventurous cultural expressions towards uh, an art organized around piety um, miracle and so on do you and also perhaps around a certain morbidity and interest in in morbid disease. Do you do you see any of that in England?
1: Yes, we we do. I think the again the, the I suppose to a certain extent the cultural surviving cultural um, inheritance of late medieval England is not as not as rich, I guess, as the that of the Italian Peninsula overall. And uh, we need to bear that in mind in terms of interpreting pre and post Black Death. There is definitely though possibility of tracing that kind of trend towards introspection, morbidity, uh, less humanistic representations in art and culture. Um, and certainly an interest in, this is well known, an interest in, in death and the body and decay and the transience of life and a, and a, and a meditation uh, on death and decay, which Kind of was there anyway, but certainly intensifies after after 1348 to 9. The thing is, the time scale again. Um, on one level, a challenge of, of making this kind of argument is the datability of certain works of culture, works of art, and architecture. Mm. Um, so it's easy to make the argument that all the all the all the masons uh, died off, and this led to um, works of architectural output that were that were that were poor in quality or that the perpendicular emerged from the gothic um, as a result of the black Death. on the ground it's a bit harder to do because of the different difficulties of dating um Mm. you know particular fronts of certain cathedrals or certain works of art but you can do it i mean there are certain uh key iconic if you like uh, forms or genres that emerge like the transi tomb would be the most famous which um, is a favoured form of um, funerary monument of, of the elites in which which represents the body as in life of the decedent on the upper level and then below a rotting corpse or a emaciated corpse uh, below into a double-decker format Mm. most famous one perhaps being in Canterbury Cathedral, uh, Archbishop uh, Chichely's transit tomb, And there are other examples of this around the place, with Becking, Bishop Beckington's of Bath and Wells, other bishops who have these things. The thing is about those, though, that they're, they're very hard to link to the Black Death that we've been talking about in the sense that they are pretty much the earlier one, earliest ones from the 1430s, a good 75, 80 years after the first pestilence. So... If there is a, a growing um, preoccupation with individualistic morbidity and decay and the transience of life, then it's something that works out over the much longer term, again, with these repeated outbreaks of epidemic disease and the fact that this becomes kind of endemic, more, more correctly, uh, in, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a kind of enduring fact of, of life for people in the 15th century.
0: Well, it was a it was an incomparably more virulent and lethal disease than uh, coronavirus, at least coronavirus as as we know it to date. Um, And yet um, society bounced back, even if people, the people who were affected didn't. I mean, they died. There's no there's no comeback Mm -hmm. from that that we know of. But um, but society did uh, restore itself. It, 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 the, the structures of society remained intact. Was, was there a breakdown in social order? A breakdown in discipline?
1: No, there wasn't actually. And I think that's an important point to stress to finish on. That um, you know, even at the height of the first outbreak, spring 1349, high summer 1349, yes, the parliament was suspended. Um, For that year and for two years following the law courts were suspended for a term Um, but the government continued to function crime does not appear to have been um, a problem in terms of an inflated crime rate either in England or in other places that have been studied such as Bologna human communities seem to have clung to their administrative routines as perhaps as a form of security so Courts in the countryside continued to be held, accounts continued to be written. In some places, you would almost never know that uh, something had happened um, in the sense that uh, record-keeping practices continued with a little gap, but pretty much unchanged without reference to what had happened. So we can take heart, I think, from the fact that human communities, although they were affected in profound ways and great loss... Tragedy and suffering was experienced. Um, Human communities and relations endured simply in in an altered form uh, as a result of the first great uh, outbreak of Black Death and the subsequent pandemics of the later 14th century.
0: I suppose this, I mean, in addition to all the intellectual pleasures of history, this m- must be one of its human comforts, that it reminds us that, we're, that there were others here before us. We're not the first who faced a predicament like this, and it's not much comfort, but perhaps a small comfort that, um, that this society uh, coped with an incomparably worse um, crisis in the mid-14th century and, um, and, and bounced back. Uh, to, to, you know, to to see a better day. Chris Briggs, thank you so much for talking to us about the 14th century crisis. Thank you.